this morning we're going to consider the Lord's family. The Lord's family and we're looking at just three verses of scripture. Although I warn you now I am going to go off in a tangent. But anyway we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 8 verse 19 through to 21. If you want to turn to to that. Luke 8 Verse 19. Then came to him his mother and his brethren and could not come at him for the press or the crowd. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother, And my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. In today's passage of scripture that I've just read, we'll see the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ and his brethren desiring to see him, but they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd that was surrounding him. Consequently, Jesus was informed that they were outside, outside the house, desiring to see him, whereupon he said, my mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Luke's gospel has this particular event taking place after Jesus had spoken to the crowd of people by means of a parable, namely the parable of a sower sowing his seed into four different types of soil. Whereas Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel have this event taking place before Jesus spoke the uh, the parable. What that suggests, and not for the first time, is that the chronological order of when Jesus spoke his parables or when he performed his miraculous words, works rather, was not a, a big consideration in Luke's Gospel which I'm quite glad about, to be quite honest, <clears throat> because I, for one, although I do try to remember the order of what Jesus said and his miracles and so on, I can never remember it all. I, I, I just lose the order of things. But that's not really important. It's not as important as the actual events themselves are and taking nothing away from their importance, we, we need to just concentrate on what Jesus said, what he did, without getting ourselves confused about the order of things. What really matters is that we know and benefit from what we read concerning the earthly ministry of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, his words, his miraculous works, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his triumphal resurrection, to the end of what? Why is it important that we we really need to get to grips with what Jesus said, what he did, particularly focus on his cross work and his resurrection from the dead, the fact that he's not in the grave, that he's now in heaven above, to the end 
that we might know him, not just know about him, but know him as our Saviour and our Lord, that we might know about his resurrection and partake of his sufferings, know about his sufferings and be partakers of those sufferings and even if it's God's will, be made conformable unto his death, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who loved us and who gave himself for us. By us, I mean those who know Jesus and who are trusting in him. We're born again by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Therefore, as we read and study the word of God in these in these few verses of scripture, May it please God to open hearts to attend to the Gospels. I talked about that earlier, how God opened the heart of Lydia to attend to the things that the Apostle Paul said. May God open hearts to attend to the things that are being said in these um, concerning these three short verses that we're going to consider this morning. Because the Word of God which we're going to consider and that I'm bringing to you this morning and that you'll be reading for yourself. That is the power of God unto salvation. Do you hear that? The word of God, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. How wonderful is that? As we study Luke chapter 8, verses 19 and 2 to 21, first of all, we shall consider the earthly, natural family of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I may as well warn you in advance that not for the first time I'll be saying a lot more than there is in this passage about the mother of Jesus, Mary. Secondly, we'll look at the spiritual family of Jesus. And last of all, we'll consider what it means to hear the word of God and to do it. So first of all, the earthly family of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 20. And it was told him by certain which said, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to see thee. Who might those brethren have been who came asking for Jesus? To answer that one, we could turn you don't have to, I'm going to read it to you. We could turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 and 56, where on another occasion, Jesus had entered a synagogue and the people said the following concerning Jesus. They said, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Well, yeah, we know that the, the, the mother of Jesus is called Mary. And his brethren, James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, not just sister, but sisters, plural, are they not all with us? Whence then have this, have this man all these things? From those words we can deduce that Jesus had four brothers, perhaps more than four brothers, and that he had more than one sister. In other words, Jesus, whose mother was still a virgin when she gave birth to him, he having been miraculously conceived 
by God the Holy Spirit in her womb, in Mary's womb, she had at least six more children after having Jesus, after giving birth to Jesus. For all that, the Roman Catholic Church teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary. In their catechism, it is written... I'm going on here because there seems to be so much acceptance of Roman Catholicism now. People who know me, they know that one of my best friends is a Roman Catholic and I believe that he's now come out of that horrible church and he's come back into the fold. But it is something... We we should have no fellowship with the Church of Rome. We really shouldn't. Listen to the uh, Roman Catholic Catechism. It says... The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it, and so... The liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as the ever-virgin. She always, she continued, she remained a virgin forevermore, according to the Church of Rome. And those who support that dogma might argue that the brethren in our passage can mean cousins or even countrymen. However, In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 25, we're told that he, that's Joseph, took unto him his wife, Mary, and knew her not till she had brought brought forth her firstborn son. Emphasis on the firstborn there. She brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. And in Luke chapter 2 verse 7, we're told that she, Mary, brought forth her firstborn son, Jesus, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. Listen, if Jesus was Mary's firstborn, which he was, we're told that, then she went on to conceive and bring forth other children. That makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus was the firstborn. Why was that? Because she had other children. And we needn't imagine that she continued to have children um, conceived by the Holy Spirit because we're told that she knew not Joseph until the birth of her firstborn. So after that, she, when she did know, when she had a normal husband-wife relationship with her husband, she went on to have, have more children. Furthermore, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was without sin and that too is clearly unbiblical. And I was talking earlier about how all of us, except of course for the Lord Jesus Christ, we come into this world as natural born sinners. It's clearly unbiblical to say that Mary was without sin. And that can be seen in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 and 47. In those verses, Mary acknowledged herself to be a sinner and God her saviour when she said, My soul doth magnify the Lord 
and my spirit have rejoiced in God my Saviour. Her spirit rejoiced in God her Saviour. You, you have God as your Saviour when you acknowledge that you're a sinner. Though they deny it, the Roman Catholics have elevated Mary to the throne of God. They won't say that we, she is God, but she is to them. She actually is. They worship her and they venerate her as co-redeemer, co-mediator, co-advocate alongside Jesus and in practice above him. That's very clear in their own dogma. For example, Pope Pius IX said, let all children of, of the Catholic Church who are so very dear to us hear these words of ours with a still more ardent zeal for piety, religion and love, let them continue to venerate, invoke and pray to the most blessed Virgin Mary. Mother of God, conceived without original sin. It's all rubbish, that. That's lies. Pray to the blessed Virgin Mary. Well, I've just told you from scriptures that she was not a perpetual virgin. And as for being conceived without original sin... She was conceived with sin. Let them fly with utter confidence to this most sweet mother of mercy and grace in all dangers, difficulties, needs, doubts and fears. Under her guidance, under her patronage, under her kindness and protection, nothing is to be feared, nothing is hopeless. No mention of Jesus there at all. It's all about Mary. She would never have wanted this. I I can't imagine that Mary would have been pleased with this dogma. Because while bearing towards us a truly motherly affection and having in her care the work of our salvation, having in her care the work of our salvation, that's seriously blasphemous. She is solicitous about the whole human race. She's not. She's too busy worshipping God in heaven. And since she has been appointed by God to be the queen of heaven and earth, has she? And is exalted above all the choirs of angels and saints, is she? Even And even stands at the right hand of her only begotten son, does she? Jesus Christ our Lord, finally Jesus gets a mention. She presents our petitions in a most efficacious manner. No, she doesn't. Jesus presents our petitions before God. Can you see the blasphemy Blasphemy in these words? It is truly terrible. Terrible. What she asks, she obtains. Her pleas can never be unheard. Well, absolutely true of Jesus, but not of anyone else. Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, where he ever lives to make intercession for those who come to God by him. This is a terrible document. Therefore, I told you, I warned you I was going to go off on a tangent. Coming back to verse 19, let's have a look at it again. Then came to him his mother and his brethren and could not come at him for the press. The mother of Jesus was, as we all know, Mary, while she was without doubt blessed among women, 
and greatly privileged to have been chosen by God to bear the Lord Jesus Christ where not to elevate her beyond that which is scriptural. Mary was accompanied by the Lord's brethren according to verse 19 and as we've seen that may have numbered uh, more than six half siblings and we need not imagine that they all had a saving faith in Jesus. I say half siblings because of course Joseph was not literally the, the father or not naturally the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, as I say, we needn't imagine that they, all those brothers and sisters had a saving faith in their big brother, in Jesus. In John chapter 7 and verse 5, it's written, neither did his brethren believe in him. How about that? Neither did his brethren believe in him. The occasion referred to there was the Feast of Tabernacles, about six months before Jesus was crucified. So it was getting close to that time when Jesus would lay down his life at the cross for sinners. But even then, his brethren did not believe in him. They had not yet made a profession of faith, something along the lines of the Apostle Peter, who in the previous chapter of John's Gospel said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. You can see that faith in Peter there, but no faith in his brethren. Certainly not at that time. And, and, and not when they came to visit Jesus with their mother. Coming back to our passage, Mark's Gospel tells us, in his parallel passage, Mark tells us concerning Jesus that when his friends, friends can mean associates or kinsmen, when they heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him for they said, he is beside himself. In other words, he's mad. That's what people thought of Jesus, he's mad. <clears throat> that happened when Jesus was win- was in the house and it was whilst he was in that house and, and his friends thought that he was beside himself that his mother and his brethren came to the house and they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. And it's thought by a number of commentators that they came to rescue Jesus. His mother and his brethren came to rescue him. We don't know this, but um, Hendrickson said in his commentary, the most charitable and probably also the most natural explanation would be that that disturbing remarks about Jesus, for example, that his opponents regarded him as being demon-possessed, and that even his friends thought that he was out of his mind, had induced Mary and Jesus' brothers, out of a natural affection and concern, to try to remove him from the public eye and to provide him a haven of rest and refreshment. May well be, it sounds reasonable. Let's move on though. We've, we've considered the, the natural family of Jesus, his mother and his brothers. Um, now we'll consider the spiritual family of Jesus. Look at verse 21. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren 
are these which hear the word of God and do it. Matthew's Gospel gives a bit more information by telling us that Jesus stretched forth his hand towards his disciples as if for emphasis when he said, Behold my mother and my brethren, pointing to his disciples, pointing towards those who were trusting in him. These are my mother and my brethren. It might seem as if Jesus had disowned his mother and his brethren, but he hadn't, far from it. Jesus was without sin, which means that there was never a time when Jesus broke any of God's laws, and that includes the fifth commandment, which says, honour thy father and thy mother. It wouldn't have been very honouring to his mother if he disowned her, would it? Far from Jesus disowning his mother, his great love and tenderness towards her was demonstrated, even when he was dying on the cross as the substitute sin-bearer. On the cross, he made arrangements for her to be cared for. We see that in John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27, where it is written, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by, whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son referring to the disciple whom he loved. Bear in mind Jesus was about to give up the ghost, to die on the cross. Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, from that time, that disciple took her into his own home. How lovely that is, isn't it? That even in his dying moments, the Lord Jesus Christ made arrangements for his mother. to to stay with the disciple whom he loved. After the ascension of Jesus to heavenly glory, according to Acts chapter 1, the apostles continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. And get this, and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. So in the upper room, where they were, where they assembled after the, ascension, after the ascension of Jesus. His apostles were there, but so too was his mother Mary. And his brethren were there. Therefore, we can safely assume that Jesus had not forsaken his mother, neither had he forsaken his brethren, who in time to come, most likely after his resurrection from the dead, they probably remained unbelieving until he'd actually risen from the dead and then the, the, the penny dropped and everything fell into place. And they, 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 from unbelieving, they believed in him. But they were no longer unbelieving, but had come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can dismiss any ideas that Jesus was somehow distancing himself from his natural family. However, more broadly, there are lessons to be learnt for us now, all these years later. Lessons to be learned by Jesus pointing towards his disciples, stretching forth his hand towards them, as he said, this is my mother, these are my brothers. 
although his mother and his brothers were standing outside the house wanting to see him. There are lessons for us. Being born into a Christian family, having a Christian mother, a Christian father, that does not in itself make you part of the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't make you part of his spiritual family. It doesn't make you a Christian having godly mum and dad. And then there are, we see in the Bible, there were Jews, very religious Jews, who did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the biggie, isn't it? They, that for all their religion, they didn't actually believe in Jesus. The kind of people that, that thought that he was beside himself, that thought he was mad, that even thought that he was demon-possessed. Those people... They laid claim to God as their father because they were Abraham's natural descendants. They could follow their descendancy all the way back to Abraham. 2,000 years earlier that was, when Abraham was in the world. But for all that, Jesus said to them that their father was the devil. And the lust of their father, the devil, they did. So, who is the Lord's family? Who belongs to the Lord? In the epistle to the Hebrew Christians, we're told that Jesus is not ashamed to call those whom he has saved from their sins and made holy brethren. To such people, he calls them brethren and he's not ashamed to do so even though he is the Son of God. People in here who are trusting in him, he calls you brethren. And don't be quick to forget what I was saying earlier on about the brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ, people like us, how we come into this world and the state of us when God calls us and draws us to his Son. Not very pretty sight, is it? Hearts that are desperately wicked and yet Jesus calls those whom he has saved by his grace, brethren. Having a genuine and everlasting relationship with God, a relationship in which you know God as your father and you know the son of God as your brother, is the reality for all who hear the word of God and do it according to our passage. And that takes us on to our final consideration because, I don't know about you, I, I, I like being a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like being part of his, uh, his spiritual family. I like it a lot. And I'm going to thank God forevermore that I am part of that family. But it is important that you know what it means to hear the word and to do it. Because look again what Jesus said in verse 21. He he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren, speaking about his spiritual family, are these which hear the word of God and do it. Let's have a look what that means. Hearing the word of God and doing it. The Lord Jesus Christ used the occasion of a visit from his mother and his brethren 
to declare something that was and still is of the utmost importance as he stretched forth his hand towards his disciples and he said those words, my mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. To hear the word of God and do it brings a person into a, a, a much closer and infinitely closer relationship with him than ever being his natural brother ever did. Having a natural relationship with Jesus ever did. The children of God are people who, having heard the word of God, believe that about 2,000... This is what hearing the word of God is. Hearing the word of God believe that about 2,000 years ago, the Son of God was manifested in the flesh. He became flesh. God came down from heaven. The Son of God came down from heaven and he took upon himself flesh. That he came into the world as the Lamb of God, sacrificial Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I'm quoting various scriptures here. And that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The people who hear, uh, who hear the word of God, they've heard those things and they believe it. So, first of all, is that you? Do you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world, that he came as a sacrificial lamb, and that he laid down his life at the cross for whosoever believeth in him? Do you believe that? Never mind you for a moment, but do you believe that the claims of the Bible that the Son of God came into this world taking upon himself the, the, a, a body. He never stopped being God, of course, and that he was crucified having lived a sinless life and he laid down his life at the cross sacrificially for all who trust in him. That's the claim of the Bible. That's a very broad claim of the Bible. Do you believe that, that this is what Jesus did? But furthermore, all of you who actually belong to Jesus, having heard about his work of redemption that culminated in him laying down his life as an atonement for sin about 2,000 years ago, and, and you believe that, what you, furthermore, you've done something about it. And I can remember when I did something about it, I can remember that so clearly. Although I forget everything else, I forget what I did yesterday. But I, I, I can remember so clearly what I did when I heard the claims, when I was told the claims of the Bible about Jesus, the Son of God, coming into this world as a sacrifice for sin. And I was in my 30s when I was first told these things or when it first registered with me. But I did something about it. And this is the important thing. By the grace of God, which is communicated to you in the gospel, in the word of God, the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation, you who belong to Jesus and who are his brother in a spiritual sense, you now truly believe that not only did Jesus come into this world to die for sinners on a cross, you believe that he was wounded for 
your transgressions, yours, never mind anyone else, your transgressions, and that your iniquities, your depravity was laid upon Jesus at the cross. You personally. That kind of faith, a personal faith in Jesus, that never comes alone. You also showed repentance towards God for your rebellion against him when you believed. Inevitable, you cannot separate the, that kind of faith, a personal faith in Jesus, laying down his life for you and repentance towards God for all your sins. That's missing from so many churches now. And that's why we've got people walking around professing Christians talking about when they invited Christ into their heart. Because there's never been, they've, ne- they've never been brought to repentance by the word of God. You cannot separate the two. A true repentance towards God is one that looks towards the cross uh, where the Lord Jesus Christ stretched out his arms and laid down his life bearing away your sins if you trust in him. And the assurance of forgiveness of all your sins and salvation full and free. That kind of salvation where you don't just know the broad claims of the Bible, but you know Jesus as the one who loved you and who gave himself for you. That is also communicated to you in your baptism. We're a Baptist church here. And it's communicated to you in your baptism as it is written in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. As we close, I'll leave you to consider the following The alternative to being in the family of God is to be an enemy of God. There's nothing else. You're either in the family of God, Jesus is your brother, your older brother, your saviour, your your Lord, or else you're an enemy of God. Therefore, hear and do the word of God, which commands you to show repentance towards God, believing that the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated the love of God towards you at the cross when he paid the debt of your sin and those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ he is not ashamed to call his brethren. Amen.